Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G, aligning business and technology. Her job is to make sure you get home from work every night safely, without injuries. Today, we have Jennifer McNally, who is the CEO of American Society of Safety Professionals. I'm really excited to talk to you today uh, about a very different topic than what I think some people think about uh, safety being something that adds a lot of value to organizations. Welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thanks, Dave. I'm really excited to be here today. You have such a very interesting past to be a prominent woman in manufacturing, a prominent woman in safety, which is traditionally an old boy network. Uh, we're going we're gonna to explore those topics. We're going to talk about why uh, safety has an ROI for businesses, which I think is not something that most people would think of. I think they probably think of it as a necessary evil, <laughs> unfortunately. I think that's a bad perspective. Um, but I want to I talk to you about that. But I, I want to get a little bit of your background first. I mean, uh, I, we're going to explore how you got into this old boy network, but but uh, let's let's figure out where you're from. So w- tell me a little bit about yourself and where you came from. I was going to say, and I'm so excited to be in the Chicagoland area, and I need to start with the name of the show, sort of Mavericks. And I've never really thought of myself as a maverick. Well, you certainly are. I just wake up every day and do what I do. And that probably goes back to my roots. Where am I from? So I'm from Alaska originally. Alaska, really? Rural Alaska, or was this uh, in the more urban areas? More urban areas. So born in Fairbanks, raised in Juneau, and ended up in Juneau. My dad was actually a civil servant, which I think is another element that runs through my family yeah. philosophy of giving back. And I am on my father's side, one of 12, and in the wow. world of... One of 12, 10 are girls. Oh, my Lord. Two are boys. And I grew up in an environment where gender was never really a consideration. Yeah. And I was in Alaska till junior high school. Actually, my mother then took us to Washington, D.C. Okay. When she became one of the first female chiefs of staff for the senator, Mike oh, Gravel wow. from Alaska. Oh, wow. So if you want to think wow. about breaking that glass ceiling, I had incredible role models. Yeah, that's tremendous. Yeah, that's cool. When we first got to Washington, you know, the senator's car picked us up and took us down and we drove past the Capitol. And keep in mind, my father was an elected official and I grew up my whole life thinking someday I was going to occupy Pennsylvania Avenue. And I saw this, I mean, it was incredible, snow on the ground and the Capitol lit at night and it was yeah, Magnificent. Really, yeah, impressive. Very impressive. And then I woke up the next day and I didn't have to go to school because there was snow on the ground. <laughs> Which is, <laughs> I, I suppose, thought, from Malaysia, you're like, what? What? And I can remember my sister Joe. You call Joe, that Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, you call that Tuesday. My sister Joe, um, we were the first two that landed in um, Washington. We actually lived in Bethesda, Maryland. And we decided we were going to walk to the grocery store. So we walked to the grocery store and the grocery store was closed. We're like, what is going on here? <laughs> So, you know, very different cultures. But I, you know, we took a family vote when my mother was offered the job to go to Washington. I don't really remember that. So were all 12 of you at the age where you would all move with or? At that point, there were five of us, the five J's. Um, So my father had, we're one of the great American blended families. Okay. A lot of. Yep. I have one of those too. Yeah. They're awesome. Yeah. Love, love all my siblings. Yeah. Um. So we took a family vote, and my parents had been separated, divorced at that point, and the decision was, let's go to Washington. And we did. And I'm forever grateful that my mother, A, had the courage. She was raising five children. I think her salary was $12,000 a year. Wow. And said, I'm, and my mother Holy cow. Yeah. is a 
immigrant. My mother is an immigrant from Iceland. Okay. So she came over wow. to the United States, ended up in Alaska. Because the weather my... was normal. <laughs> <laughs> well, she actually landed in New York City and that her oh, uncle yeah. brought her over and um, ended up in Alaska because my father wanted to get involved in politics. And somebody said, if you want to get involved in politics, go where nobody knows you. And Alaska wasn't even a state when they went there. Oh, wow. So it was that, you know, it was wow. in the 50s. Yeah. So oh, sure. Yeah, the right. courage she had to move kids to the East Coast is admirable. Yeah. Wow. Tremendous. Yeah. So um, you uh, you must have done well in school. You, you went to University of Maryland. I did. I graduated from University of Maryland. With a STEM degree? I did not end up with a STEM degree. I ended up with a political science degree. Oh, well, I guess that makes sense. You wanted to be in the Oval Office. I wanted to be in the Oval Office. So that was the route that I was um, seeking at that point. I actually worked um, for a polling firm when I was in college. Okay. And I I think my STEM passion tends to come around numbers. And and I often share this story in speeches to individuals that are engaged in STEM degrees. When I was in – so my father has an eighth-grade education, had an eighth-grade education – and my mother, a first-generation immigrant. I could make a joke about politicians, but I'll refer. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. I understand. Um, I, I like to consider my dad an old-school politician. Yeah. But um, when I was in the fifth grade, I had Mr. Hard as my math teacher. And I had Mr. Hard for fifth grade and sixth grade. At that point in Juneau, you had oftentimes the same teachers. And at the end of sixth grade, so that was the point at which we were – you know, moving on to junior high school, Mr. Hart sent a note home to my mother that said, Jennifer's really good in math. You should encourage her. And from that point on in my life, whether I could solve the quadratic equation or not, I was really good in math. Right. Because it sets the image. Because Mr. Hart, Mr. Hart told me I was good in math. Yeah. And the one regret I have is I never thought about thanking him to the point that it impacted my life. Yeah. It's funny how things like that can set you on a path. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I uh, uh, I was never very good. I, I shouldn't say never very good. I was not good in school overall. Um, I, I'm a slow reader. And so anything that had a lot of reading uh, always slowed me down. But math was always super easy for me. And so, I, you know, my average always ended up pretty good because I killed it in math and then kind of struggled by in everything else. And You uh, and I are like minds there. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, math is easy because there's a right answer and a wrong answer. And it's so uncommon in life that you get a right answer or a wrong answer. So I really enjoy it. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, then your journey because I know you worked uh, for the Department of Labor, right, under Bush? I did work under Bush, ran two presidential level initiatives. And I like to think all the opportunities that I've had in my career have led me to the point where I am in service today. And my journey after college, so I mentioned I worked for a polling firm. I went from working for a polling firm to working for one of the top Democratic media firms in the country. And that was a a different lens of the political life, followed by um, time at Emily's List which is the largest political women's group dedicated to electing women to office. So the first 10 years of my career was really in what I'd call hardcore national politics. Yeah. And um, And it sounds like on the numbers side of politics. The number side of politics and the strategic side of how do you win. And that my time at Emily's List was actually the first dedicated space outside of who I am as a person focused on the advancement of women. What do you mean outside of my person? Well, 
10 girls and two boys in a family and you're automatically <laughs> scrapping for the female right. in life. Back right. to that, never saw a barrier of gender and a job I couldn't do. Right. Yeah, that's true. Right. So my whole upbringing is anchored in that set of experiences, right. as any child is. Right. So from Emily's list, I actually moved out of politics and that started my journey in the people-centric approach. So that point made a very conscious decision that running for office was not my future. Um, and I can even remember when my Why? father makes me sad to say, but politics is a business. And what I liked about public service was the service side of that. Yeah. And what I realized was I have the opportunity to serve in a different way. And that truly is what's led me to ASSP. That is, I can contribute in a way that advances where I don't have to be part of that business. Right. The engine that... The that engine that drives what is a sector of the, and the, yeah, yeah. 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 Doesn't mean I don't... Interesting. To ...choose to serve. I just do yeah. it different. So from that, I made a complete shift into what I think is the front end of my people-centered approach to where I am today. So I worked for a consulting firm in Alexandria, Virginia, called Strategic Partnerships. Um, and Strategic Partnerships was a very boutique consulting firm whose sole focus was the intersection of talent and the world of work and how you move people into employment opportunities. And I was coming at it from the corporate side of where do you find people? And one of the early projects I was a part of was something that was uh, started by Jack Smith at GM that was the Automotive Youth Educational Systems, AYES, which Jack Smith, when he was the head of GM, realized they had a huge challenge finding technicians. Yeah. And they weren't going to solve that problem themselves. And as an incredible CEO that he was, he went out to the other automotive manufacturers and said, this isn't our problem, but, but our dealers can't sell cars if people can't fix cars. So how do we create a pipeline of future workers? And I had the opportunity to work with AYES and set up their national partnerships and help them support expansion in schools across the country. AYES. AYES, the Automotive Youth Educational System. Got it. Okay. Sorry. So that was my first experience of there's a whole set of employment opportunities out there that kids today don't understand. Yes. And how do we build that bridge? Right. My role and responsibility at Strategic Partnerships was supporting companies to build partnerships with government. So I was constantly walking in the door of the U.S. Department of Labor saying, Raytheon can't find people. Toys R Us can't find people. Verizon can't find people. And I, and I started that effort during the Clinton administration and it carried over to the Bush administration. And then I was approached and somebody said to me, well, we're going to try and solve this. You want to come run the industry side for us? So I went in as a civil servant to run industry engagement on behalf of the U.S. Department of Labor and their $15 billion publicly funded workforce investment system. Wow. So you'd know that as the place you go if you lose your job and you need to file unemployment. Right. So what people don't know about that system is it operates in every community across the country under a different name. And its sole purpose is to get you back into the workforce or to get you the training that you need to get back into the workforce. Right. So I ran two president training key. Training key. Yes. In the in the in the world of constant change, you always need to be mindful of the skills that you have. Evolving skill set. Changes every day. Yep. Changes yeah. every day. And and a big piece of our effort focused on 
our nation's community and technical colleges. I have great respect for yes. the bridge that builds somebody from where they are to where they need to be. Or want to be, right? You know, Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Or, or want to be. So, front, so that's really what I did at the U.S. Department of Labor. And I had the opportunity to interact with every one of the agencies. I ran a number of interagency efforts, including where's the government spending money on STEM? And how do you maximize that? And we worked with agencies such as the National Science Foundation and the Department of Defense. And we worked with the Veterans Office within the Department of Labor. So I had the opportunity to meet with over 4,000 industry executives, every sector of the economy. We, I ran something called the High Growth Job Training Initiative, which looked at 14 key sectors of the U.S. economy and how we make sure they have the talent that they need to continue to grow and expand. And everybody said, I can't find people. They're showing up and don't have the skills that I need. And if I could find them and they'd show up on day two, I'm willing to train them. Yes. And half of the work we did was in manufacturing. Yes. And, our- and it's it's shocking. We have we have so many clients, you know, over half of Mother G's client base are industrial clients and and they are stymied not by lack of business. Mm-hmm. In most cases, it's by lack of worker. They could do more, but they're they're taxing their existing workers by working uh, lots of overtime, a little bit overtime's good, but too much burns them out. They can't find people to work. And it, you think, what do you mean? These are machinists. Like what, you, you know, the United States doesn't have enough machinists? Come on. So I'm I'm sensing a thread now of how you ended up at the Manufacturing Institute. Can, can you, uh, so you, you're at Department of Labor. How does this end? I move over to the Manufacturing Institute. So I have a strong passion for our for our nation's manufacturers and the industrial base that drives our economy. And I do because I fundamentally understand that if we don't find the workers we need to keep America strong, that is going to have multi-generational impacts yes. on on our standard of living. Right. And I fear that we have a perception problem in this country on what an, what a, what a, what a skill is and what it means and what defines success for an individual anchored in the perception of a four-year degree when we have a multitude of skills that are required. Oh, hallelujah. I mean, this is this is one of the things that drives me crazy. So, you know, we're we're an IT company. There's this perception that you have to go to college for 4 years, spend two of those years learning about psychology, and earth science, and not that those things are bad, but some people just don't care that much about them. And you have to get through this four-year degree to get a job, and when you graduate, you don't really have functional skills to go do anything. And yet, there's this whole community of vocational schools, lot known as junior colleges, um, that are focused on developing a very specific skill. They're not really focused on giving you a broad education, but but much more specific skills that allow you to go get uh, maybe an internship uh, or um, apprenticeship. Or, thank you, You're welcome. an apprenticeship when you graduate uh, to develop a skill. And in in I think there's this disdain, like, well, you know, a machinist. You know, what's that? I know machinists that are making six figure incomes working fifty hours a week which is pretty standard for most professionals. But when they leave the job, they're done. 
their right. stress goes to virtually zero. Right. Uh, and it, it's just shocking to me that more people aren't more engaged in thinking that through. But I think, you know, I, I, the perception is so negative there. And, and, and I want to see what well, your perspective is on that. I'll circle back to our membership. So the American Society of Safety Professionals has 40,000 members globally very diverse base of experiences and individuals, and 60% of them come from somewhere else. So traditional and non-traditional paths. And I am in favor of both. I don't want in any way, shape, or form to say one or the other is bad. What What is also culturally missing, I think, and it's something that feeds into why I'm the leader that is now sitting in the C-suite at ASSP, which is the world around us is changing, yet we have a structural environment of education and learning that is a a destination, not a lifelong journey. So you you celebrate a series of milestones. Today we even celebrate kindergarten. Yeah. You know, kindergarten to seventh grade or eighth grade, whatever it may be, to high school, to community and technical college. Sixty percent of our membership comes from another functional area. And they have to learn. They, they're exposed to safety. They have to go back and get those skills. Right. Those and certifications that, and skill development. Absolutely. That's a big piece of what we do with our membership is lifelong learning and skill building to make sure that they have what they need to serve the companies and, and workers that they represent on the job every single day. It's how does everybody have access to the knowledge they need to be successful in the career they're pursuing at the point in time at which they need it. I yes. mean, IT is a great example. I bet your team has to develop all the time. It's a constant thing. And it's the thing that um, I, I stress. We, 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 we culturally went through a shift in how we hire people uh, a number of years ago where we used to hire on skill and capability at that time. And now we hire on culture fit and organizational alignment. Because when we started, there were no iPhones. Wi-Fi was kind of a burgeoning new thing. You know, 2006, technology was a very different thing. So, but I have people that have been with me with me that entire journey. Their skills have evolved and developed over that time. And if you don't invest in your people, if you don't invest in that continuous education and development, then they fall behind. And frankly, it's a, I think it's a relationship that the employer has to have with the employee. There, there needs to be shared responsibility in saying we're going to do this together. You can't make somebody learn something, you know, and so we have some people that have stagnated. Uh, but, you know, we help them realize, like, look, you're falling behind. You need to come up to speed and, and develop those things. But it, it's really a, uh, an interesting battle, and, you know, I fight that firsthand. But I'm wondering how you help large corporations, because I know you're involved in across the sector. How do you help them realize this and then do something about it? I am a Gallup certified strengths coach, and that is fundamentally a reflection of my philosophy of not just the journey that I've traveled in connecting people to work, but also the opportunity to spark the best out of everybody. You know, I certainly as the CEO recognize, yeah, I don't know it all. Right. But if I have the right team surrounding me and and safety professionals can be very lonely, depending on the size of the company, it could be a large enterprise or a small enterprise. They have an unbelievable burden that sits yes. on their shoulders. Yes. The life of right. the company. And the people. And the people. 
Yeah. The life of the company, the life of the individuals, the life of the ecosystem. And we launched under my leadership. And in fact, Diana Stigall, our president, wrote about this in our monthly professional safety journal in January, a learning and development ecosystem that helps a safety professional be- begin to understand the role in leadership that they have in being the best technical expert while while also being the best people-centered person to build and collaborate because a safety professional can't make workers safe without the partnerships and strengths that they pull from across the company. They can't do it alone. It's a shared ownership. It's shared at the front line. It's shared at the C-suite and it's shared at every functional line across an organization. So that's the philosophy that we have started to bring forward through the society. In fact, I'll, um, we have a leadership development course that's anchored in strengths-based development that that we're that's now part of our content offering. Yeah, which is really I th- I think that's a really powerful way of focusing people because too many times people focus on trying to um, uh, become better at their weaknesses and it's really kind of a wasted effort. Like you're not going to make me better at reading than what I am. I can maybe I'm certainly competent at reading. But put a math problem in front of me or give me a spreadsheet and and I flourish, right? So why force me to become better at reading? Like, why do that, right? And our entire performance management system is has, has centered that way. And it is a culture shift. And it's certainly a culture shift at the corporate level. You know, it sounds really squishy. Strengths-based development. What does that mean? But it's about understanding where people are competent in specific things and building a team that makes the ecosystem whole. So we talk about the ASSP learning and development ecosystem and it's not the, it's the board of directors and it's the membership and it's the professional staff, unbelievably talented professional staff, but each of them aren't the experts at everything either. Right. Right. So how did you end up in the American society of safety professionals? It was the opportunity that brought me to the Midwest. I They were looking for a new CEO. They'd been through some transition. They We actually went through a, a branding and name change from the American Society of Safety Engineers to the American Society of Safety Professionals in recognition of the depth and breadth of our membership. And they were looking for somebody who had a different background. And I bring a fairly eclectic set of yes, skills. Yes, you do. Yeah. Um, including global engagement with organizations like the World Economic Forum, my philosophy on talent development and driving performance. And, and if we're doing our job right for the safety professionals, that's going to improve the companies that they're working on. And my experience with a regulatory environment so I can yeah. get wonky and data-driven with the best of them. Yeah. So so they bring you on in a largely male-dominated arena. Is that fair to say? That's fair to say. And they also bring me on as a non-safety professional. Right. Yep. Second piece. So this is a bit of a square peg round hole Um, or kind of a catalyst for change that is really powerful. I think the the board of directors and the leadership team within the society was on a journey of change and I happen to be the right next set. And I take that responsibility for as long as I am in service yeah. Very serious. Because yeah. someone will someone came before me and someone will come, come after you after me. Right. And my responsibility is to continue to move us forward. And I think that my experience in manufacturing and technical fields, equally the work that I did around diversity and inclusion and women in manufacturing, you know, the safety profession is changing. 
And we need to make sure that we have opportunities for all individuals interested in succeeding. And I do think they were welcoming of a new perspective. And So how is it being... Uh, one of the fewer women in a meeting with mostly men kind of perspective? (laughs) That's a great question. Well, I'm fortunate. I have very strong um, diversity on our board of directors, but I am the first one to remind um, board members. So, you know, our, we have a succession planning and people usually serve for sort of about three years. And, and, and one of our board members went on a gap year, which means he was on the board and now he will, He's now our senior vice president, Brad Giles, and he will become the president two years from now. And I do say, remember, Brad, you were one of the ones that hired me. So (laughs) you were looking for some fresh ideas. So I'm happy to push them. I also am respectful. You know, anytime somebody comes in new, everybody assumes change is going to happen. Right. And anchored in my responsibility as the CEO is trust, compassion, leadership, and hope. I have to create an environment that allows everybody else to succeed. Right. And if I'm doing that, whether it's the board of directors, the membership, or the staff, then I've done my job as the CEO. And 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 we've been through a lot of change. And it wasn't like I was coming in and knew exactly the thing. I spent the first 18 months listening. Yeah. And out on the road and understanding. Which is wise. I mean, you, you can't ignore the wisdom experience failures of of what other people have gone through and what they've learned you can't throw that out absolutely uh, it doesn't not. mean it's wrong it just means that maybe there's another way as well right absolutely and then there is how you get to collective ownership of change if the and this is something we've been working at, at and you know you're in the IT industry so you know this firsthand the only constant is change yes. and how do you prepare for that in an environment that is i mean look at Safety professionals traditionally risk averse. So their job is to make sure that they're mitigating risk. They're the ones that say no. Yeah. (laughs) Well, but but just by nature of the job. Sure. But yet everything is shifting around them. So how do we help make sure that they have the skills that they need to be successful in that shifting environment? Yeah. What what have you seen from a technology evolution standpoint, and notably in manufacturing, what do you think is the most significant change in the last number of years and, and what's its impact on safety? It's interesting. I was in a, a conversation that was hosted by Bloomberg and the new economy group that they have in Silicon Valley back in September. And that was the exact topic. What is the what are the influences that are shifting change? And I look at a couple big trends, and then I'll shift it to what it looks like for the safety professionals. So, um, automation. Yep. What does automation mean? Data. Call yeah. it the Internet of Things. Right. Call it ability to see what's going on in the shop floor without having to rely on people. Uh, with latent information, right? Correct. Real-time view. Instant access to information and abundance of it that you have to sort through. Right. Um, I think the globalization of the world of work. Yeah. As a f- along with the aging population. And then process innovation, things like 3D printing, which to me in my mind leads to a more democratization is the term that I would use in manufacturing. It opens up access. So every one of those technologies opens up access to new opportunities, to skills, to keeping people safer. From a safety professional perspective, that's a lot of different inputs. And just unpack the technology influences and data. How do safety professionals interpret the abundance of data to move from 
what we would call lagging indicators when an incident happens to leading. Where are there future so I can go stop Convergence something. of indicators saying that something may go wrong here if we let this keep going. Correct. Yeah. Predictive so I can then right. go fix it before it becomes an issue. Right. So that's a whole set. There's another really big shift that I think everybody pays attention to it, but how you grapple with it, I don't know that we've solved yet as, a, as an economy, which is the diversity of the workforce and the aging population. Yes. So let's just take, let's unpack the aging population for a safety professional. Individuals are staying in the world of work longer. They're now oh, interfacing yeah. with a different set of technologies. The expectations for job performance are different. What does that mean for, you know, utilization of exoskeleton machines right. in, a, in a manufacturing environment or something? Right. What does it mean for somebody who's lifting boxes in a warehouse and moving them? What does it mean when that individual is working next to a machine that's moving the boxes and they're doing this? So there's a whole different set of dynamics that are equally coming back to an individual that's changing the environment that a safety professional has to consider. Yeah. It's dynamic. Very dynamic. I want to talk a little bit about this concept that you talk about having positive ROI from safety. Um, I think traditionally most people would look at safety as one of these necessary evils. I shouldn't even say necessary evil, but I know a lot of business owners and I think that's how they would look at it. Like they're just trying to minimize cost per unit, maximize quality and competitive uh, opportunities. And safety, you know, I think has a perception of being friction against those those drivers. Uh, and I think you have a different perspective on that. I'd like to explore that a little bit. I do. And I, I will say I am well aware, having come from Washington, of the perception of business in what I'd call a highly regulated or a highly deregulated yes. environment around safety. Right. And, and companies comply with the law. That would be the minimalist compliance right. check. OSHA standard, right? OSHA standards. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes, OSHA standards. When we look at safety as a contributing factor, we we look at um, risk management back to the how do we manage it before it becomes an issue. We look at the impact across systems integration. And the other element that we've been working with um, the total worker health out of the federal government that looks at the impact. So every CEO today is worried about talent, the workforce they have, how they're going to keep them, and everything else that's going on with them. Let's come back to that dynamic of corporate's smart business and good business. Keeping people safe means you get, if if you're rethinking and redesigning a job for somebody that's now 60 and not 30, you're saving, you're retaining your talent, and you're not and you're proactively managing to a cost that could be incurred backwards. Safety absolutely advances companies and is part of the entire component around a people-centric approach yeah. to organizational management. I, I have a friend who um, who runs a large uh, construction company um, in the power industry, and the only thing he talks about religiously in every his email signature, and he's the CEO, his email signature – uh, closing statement uh, is always safety first, and it's it's around employee safety. And I find it fascinating because um, when you start breaking down the impact of having unsafe work environments or s- environments that can cause problems uh, for the worker, which usually means there's quality problems in the product as well, 
um, work stoppages, slowdowns, uh, healthcare costs. There, there's really kind of a waterfall effect to the whole issue if you're running less safe and thus I'm assuming the inverse is also true. If you're running more safe, then a lot of those systems are running more efficient, higher quality, um, better employee retention, better employee productivity. All those things must come true as well. Yeah? Absolutely. And uh, I want to meet this CEO (laughs) because we talk a lot. um, You know, there's a couple leadership books, Rosa Correa on safety leadership, and we talk about psychosocial safety. And is, and is, is it okay to point out something is wrong? And that's a responsibility of a safety professional to make sure that it is safe for individuals to have somebody to say, I'm not comfortable with this. This is what's going on. And that's pretty complex. And I'll take it back to the roots of the American Society of Safety Professionals. And we were founded on tragedy. 1911, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire in New York City, where 145 workers died. And they did. It was all preventable. It was, you know, locked doors. Now, we are not in that same sweatshop environment today, but it shouldn't take tragedy to prevent what we know. And and there's a lot of debate in the safety world today, and that gets to can we get to zero incidences? And and I have to say, I, I humans are human. Mistakes happen Systems are not always designed with right. the end game well, in especially mind. Especially when you have new workers coming into the workforce. They, they don't have the wisdom of the people that have been there a long time. Yeah, and I don't want – I want to be clear. This is not about the worker because the worker is where it lands. This is right. about the environment. Are they – Systems, Are processes. they trained appropriately? Right, exactly. Is the commitment coming in that makes sure that we're doing everything that we can to keep them safe? That to me is the corporate responsibility and good business because turn you know turnover. I think of another one of the dynamics that's hitting the workforce around um, you know the catchy term the Uberization of right. work, where you have different I call them different social compacts yeah. for employment. Yeah, right. And that impacts an environment that somebody's working in too. Absolutely. I mean, I I think where uh, it it resonates with me a lot is when. You think of safety not in context of a social res- or a, a responsibility of society and the corporation, but in, into the organizations, the corporation's responsibility to the employee. I think all that is 100% true, but where it really drives the entrepreneurial aspect is when you say, look, you shouldn't be doing it only for governance, only for safety, but those aspects, if you build processes around uh, safety for the worker, you're also building processes that are going to produce more better results for the organization and thus your profits tend to go up. And And I think you, you have an interesting study about people who invest in safety uh, and that the, they're more profitable on average than the companies that don't. That's correct. And that is the integrated – and we use the term beyond compliance. Getting to just checking the boxes against OSHA doesn't make safety contribute and, right. and keep workers safe. Right. That's where risk management comes in. That's where systems integration and systems management. Actually, just after I started, a global standard ISO 45001 came on board, which is all about systems integration across an enterprise. And when you get to that level of integration, you get to greater efficiencies, you get to higher profitability, and it's all of those things contributing. Yeah. It's a holistic approach. Yeah. 
that's that's fascinating. What what do you think? Um, how do you compare the United States uh, in in our manufacturing capabilities and whatnot uh, to the world in general? China, um, Southeast Asia, uh, other big you know Europe, certainly Germany. How would you compare us from a technology standpoint, competitive, etc.? Yeah, now you're speaking to my heart, man. Um, I I wouldn't make it anywhere but here. And I understand global supply chains and have the greatest respect. And again, I've done work at the, you know, with the World Economic Forum looking at the manufacturing economy. And I'd often said, you know, we got a big bullseye on our back and everybody wants to do it the way we do. The, you know, the the entrepreneurial nature, the bootstraps that that make up America make manufacturing strong in this country. Yet I worry we can't find the workers that we need. I know. Isn't it crazy? (laughs) Yes, it is. Yeah, it's uh, I, I, one of our clients has one of the most sophisticated manufacturing operations I've seen. I, I toured uh, Porsche's manufacturing facility in mm. Germany, and it's amazing when you see cars flying through the air on conveyor belts with robots putting pieces on it and welding them together. It's it's fascinating, and in this organization's manufacturing is even more sophisticated than that. And it's in Lake Zurich, Illinois, and yeah. um, you know their their manufacturer, uh, it, it, their owners commitment to technology and process innovation is is really i can't think of anything uh matched to that so we have this challenge around developing our workforce uh in building for the future um what do we do about it i'm a big believer in public private partnerships and you know it's not the role of government to solve a problem but government contributes so how do we make sure that we get to alignment and engagement with the workforce. And I'll, you know, within the safety professional, um, you know, we too struggle finding the right workers. And that, and, and I've been working a lot with our foundation, and we give a lot of scholarships away. Um, through the, so anybody out there listening, looking at safety careers, the ASSP Foundation does scholarships annually. So yeah, that's great. <laughs> always looking to diversify right. where we contribute. And in the course of that, it's Having the courage to explore a new opportunity, understanding that skill building is lifelong development, that's a personal responsibility, a personal accountability. I think the company's responsibility is to be clear on expectations and to support a learner. So nothing hurts my heart more than individuals that want to advance but don't have the economic means to do so. So how do companies change policy to not say, I'll reimburse your education, but let me pay for your education because I'm investing in you. And that right. can be a barrier, whether it's time or money. And and then what role does government play in making sure that social supports can be tapped into? But I think it takes – it's a community-driven effort. And yeah. through my time at the Department of Labor, I mean – I managed a three quarters of a billion dollars worth of investment in public private partnerships. And those investments that sustain today in the communities that I've been engaged in. In fact, I'm going back to Forsyth Tech in North Carolina in September to have a speech. And it's probably been you know, 20 years since my time at labor when we made an investment in their technology efforts. And 20 years later, the work is still going on. That's and amazing. That's individuals tr- are getting tremendous. jobs. So it has to happen at the community yeah. level. You know, Harper College, uh, a number of years ago, invested in a, um, a machinist program of developing machine operators, which is, I think, kind of a silly – one of the things we have to change is how we – how we term that um, it, it, it's a machine operator, but it's really a computer programming job around building and operating 
these very large, complicated uh, machines that are tooling uh, and um, um, manipulating metal to get parts out of these processes and very sophisticated. But they, they entered partnership with uh, manufacturers uh, in the Chicagoland area to co-sponsor uh, workforce development and, and uh, offer apprenticeships to the, to the graduates of the school. And it's, it's really, uh, I think, an impressive initiative. I'd like to see more and more of that happening uh, across the nation, but also, I think one of the challenges is, and they and they've asked me um, as well as other professionals to go into the high schools and talk to the graduating class and say, "Hey, you don't have to all go to college. You, you know, there's got some very excellent opportunities with high income growth potential at a low investment point uh, from an education standpoint. What you know, you don't have to run away for four years and not, you know incur a large debt." Uh, to come and develop a very nice career. So, um, and I've done, I love Har- Harper College. They have a fantastic um, safety program there as well. And Dr. Ender, who was probably the president when you were, you were when that machining program launched. Um, I think that's a big piece of it. And one of the other things is just awareness and going back and talking to kids in the classroom. And, and it's not that they won't eventually go to college or get a four-year degree. It's getting the right education to get them the next step yes. and getting the right education to get – and that's what our nation's community and technical colleges do Yeah, is yeah. build that pathway. Let's talk a little bit about the diversity aspect. You're uh, a woman in a male-dominated area. I think uh, – what, what is it? Uh, 27% of the professionals in manufacturing are women um, – you know, which is a big disparity from about a 51% population number. What do we do to change that and why is that important? I think it's important because access to economic opportunity is anchored in understanding that you too can do a job. And I was very blessed. I launched the Step Ahead initiative when I was at the Manufacturing Institute, which recognized women in science, technology, engineering, and production functions. And sitting in a room of women, 120 of them from around the country during one of the um, conversations, a woman stood up and said, well, you know, um, now this job is safe for me as a woman. And then somebody else stood up and said, it's, it's not for you as a woman. It's for everybody. And that mentality of how we create opportunity and understanding and then the path. And a big piece of that comes from mavericks that are willing to chart that course and role models. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about how you were brought up. I mean, you didn't – I mean, I'm going to guess, but it sound, sounds like you weren't really brought up thinking I'm a woman. I don't – you didn't have boundaries. You didn't see – where you could or couldn't do things. It was, you know, fight for yourself. I got nine other women here I can fight with for the bathroom or whatever. Uh, You you know, you had to fight for yourself and and make those opportunities. And thus, you know, when you have that attitude, you tend to not pay attention to those, those, those speed bumps along the way. Ignorance is bliss. Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. But I do... I have had, and, and we have a huge initiative on diversity and inclusion in, at ASSP. And the reason, and it was actually one of the first events that I did with external stakeholders when I got there was a Women in Safety Summit. And we had three tracks that we looked at. And some of these things you don't always think about. One of them was around personal protective equipment. You know, is small, medium, and large really the right way to size something in an environment where bodies aren't the same? Yeah. It's not just an issue for women. That's an issue for workers. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, but that's not the way design always happens. Right. So how do you make the design process more cognizant of the end 
body, regardless right. of gender, right. and what that looks like. That was one track that we focused on. Another was around women in leadership. And I fundamentally know from all of my youth engagement that people need to see the possibility. Yes. And need to be able to identify. And and you can get stopped at a glass ceiling. And how do you get around that? And part of that is understanding how you break it, whether that's educational competencies or how you're building your relationships and your networks. But it's also really important for safety professionals and future safety professionals to see the diversity of opportunity based on individuals that are out in the marketplace. So we have a We Are Safety campaign. And we launched it when we relaunched our brand to make sure that we were putting a face of opportunity on safety. And it is a great career. Yeah, sure. So I'm wondering, um, in this male-dominated area, have you ever experienced the, uh, you know, the mansplaining or the somewhat, um, <laughs> uh, you know, somewhat flippant disregard for opinion because you're a woman. Have you ever experienced that? Or, I mean, you have a strong personality, so it wouldn't surprise me if that, if that wasn't the case, but, uh, those that bring it up are very brave. <laughs> Just kidding. And you're right. I am you know, from by nature of birth, not a shrinking violet, but actually uh, a year ago, and I'm headed to one of our, we have a something called safety focus. It's a, a week plus of intense training for safety professionals. And it was, and I was there a year ago right now. So I was, you know, about six months on the job and, and I try to be very accessible. I don't want people to be <laughs> intimidated. Just, yeah. I don't want people to be, I want to be accessible. I want yeah. people to know they can give me their opinion. You know, my husband once said to me, does anybody say no to you? <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, actually they do. But I was at this event and I had a professional. Not for long, but. <laughs> yeah. No, they, remember, I, I understand. I don't know all the answers. Yeah. I always have an opinion, but right. that doesn't mean yeah, right. it's right. Right. I'm um, with you. But I was at this event and I was, it was during coffee talk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, people were just coming up and I'd been around to classrooms to say, hey, I'm the new CEO. And I had somebody come up to me and say, you know, when I heard they'd hired you, I thought they were crazy. <laughs> I thought, he goes, but oh. wait, but wait. Now I understand. Oh, well, good. So seek to understand. Yeah. And there was a reason the board of directors selected me for this point in time, whether it is my, as I've been called, infectious enthusiasm. Yes, you have that. For the importance and noble cause that is sending everybody home at the end of the day to their families. Yeah. Yeah. I got a great job. It's a great job. It's a great job. Yeah. Well, this has been a tremendous time together. I really appreciate uh, your open candor and honesty and sharing your, your life experiences with us. Uh, and uh, I, I wish you the very best going forward. Thank you, Jennifer. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. If you're a maverick who wants your story told on Midwest Mavericks, go to MotherG.com slash podcast and let us know. That's MotherG.com slash podcast. Midwest Mavericks is powered by Mother G. For more information and a free security assessment, visit MotherG.com.